Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Do you make a list of behavioral problems in the cat? And I'm putting that in scare quotes because they're behavioral problems as defined by us. They might be scratching, urinating outside the litter box, hunting for prey, seeking attention. All of these things that are labeled as behavior problems are, are actually natural behaviors of a cat. For dogs, you could make a similar list, barking rolling in dead stuff, seeking attention. These are behaviors that are perfectly natural for a dog. To teach a dog to be a good pet means we have to teach them basically to suppress their natural behaviors. So walking a dog on a leash, that's not a normal, natural thing for a dog to do. And it takes a lot of effort on our part to help them understand (laughs) what it means to do that. Being our pets isn't easy for animals. We really expect them to adapt to an environment that is quite unnatural and in many ways quite challenging for them. And welcome to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Dr. Jessica Pierce. Dr. Pierce is an American bioethicist, philosopher, and writer. She currently has a loose affiliation with the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado, Denver but considers herself mostly independent. She has worked variously at the University of Colorado Boulder, the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and Randolph-Macon Women's College, having studied at the University of Virginia, Harvard Divinity School, and Scripps College. Early in her career, she focused on questions of human health and the environment, co-authoring Environmentalism and the New Logic of Business, and The Ethics of Environmentally Responsible Healthcare. Since the 2000s, much of her work has focused on human relationships with animals. She collaborated with Mark Burkhoff for Wild Justice, The Moral Lives of Animals, and The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age, and authored The Last Walk, Reflections on Our Pets at the End of Their Lives in 2012. Dr. Pierce's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2016's Run, Spot, Run. The Ethics of Keeping Pets, published by University of Chicago Press. Run Spot Run is a book which investigates the ambiguous ethics of pet ownership. Dr. Pierce writes, quote, Pet keeping has dark undercurrents. The breeding facilities, the wholesale marketplaces, where animals are bought like guns or toys, the high mortality, 
the shelters overflowing with bodies, the shockingly high numbers of animals being sexually exploited or physically abused by their owners, the punitive training methods that leave animals emotionally traumatized, the failure of more than a quarter of all pet owners to provide their animals access to basic veterinary care, end quote. That said, Run Spot Run is not purely gloomy. It is also a book that gives pet owners the knowledge they need to build deeper, better relationships with the animals with whom they've chosen to share their lives. Welcome, Dr. Pierce, and thank you for joining us today. No, thank you for inviting me. Your book is, simply put, overwhelming. I genuinely struggled to narrow down the list of items I wanted to ask you about. So many provocative facts and perspectives do you bring to this underappreciated ethical space. As we tackle the book, I propose we follow a structure similar to the one you take with the book, beginning with issues of individual responsibility and guardianship, Then we will zoom out to take in the broader ethical environmental implications. And finally, we will wrap up by discussing ways in which human-animal guardianship can be done ethically. To the listener, let me stress up front, Dr. Pierce and I are both pet guardians. We both love animals. There are real and significant benefits to having a pet, benefits that go both to the human and animal ends of that relationship. But one of the things that makes... Dr. Pierce's book, such an important contribution to the literature, is that it brings up aspects of pet keeping that we do not commonly think of, and that are perhaps a bit more problematic than we have previously assumed. And so our interview today is going to focus on many of the ethically problematic aspects of pet guardianship, or as it is commonly known, ownership. Not out of any hostility towards animals, but out of a love for them and a desire to protect them and make sure they live happy, comfortable, rewarding lives. As Dr. Pierce writes in her book, quote, We cannot become another animal, but we can try walking in their paws and can take an imaginative journey into their world. Once we've seen, then, we need to begin speaking out, because silence is a form of acquiescence. Our animal companions need our voice of protest and protection. Dr. Pierce, as a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, both your training and the focus of your work. So, sure. I'm trained in the field of bioethics. It's a a subfield of philosophy, and it's really takes place at the intersection of ethics and science, particularly the biological sciences. I started my career teaching medical students and then undergraduates. And, you know, I've been focused within the broader realm of medical ethics and bioethics for my whole career on human relationships to other animals and to nature. So environmental ethics and animal ethics have been a large part of my work. And the last several books that I've written have focused principally on human-animal relationships. And I will say that, that pet keeping is not a typical area of interest for somebody who does bioethics. I think that that is one thing that is sort of unique about my work. I come to it with a slightly different perspective than people coming from maybe a strictly animal philosophy background. I'm particularly interested in the ethics of uh, what we do with the science of ethology or animal behavior. So what does the science of, of what we know and what we're learning about animal cognition and emotions, how should that influence our ways of 
of interacting with them. And in the case of my book, Run, Spot, Run, you know, how does that speak to our practices of, of living with them in our homes as companions? Your focus on pets is what makes your work somewhat unique and also what makes it important. Because I think more and more people are gradually coming around to the fact that there are ethical problems with hunting and animal agriculture. But I think pet guardianship is still somewhat on the vanguard. I am not sure if many people, including people engaged in animal ethics, are too attentive to the subject of pets. So I think your book is quite important, and I myself found it to be a bit of a revelation. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And I, I do think you're right, because I, I think most people think pets are animals who we, we love, obviously, and pets who we take really good care of and who are lucky <laughs> to live with us, you know, and the problems of zoos and factory farms are pretty obvious. But the issues with pet keeping are much less so, which makes it a really interesting area of of exploration, too. Okay, let's start with a sense of scale. In 2016, you write, quote, an estimated 80 million dogs, 95 million cats, 160 million fish, 20 million birds, and millions of diverse other animals are kept as pets in U.S. households, end quote. That was 2016. Those numbers are surely higher today as the trajectory is trending upwards. So let's ballpark it that we're talking about half a billion household pets in the United States alone today. And pet keeping is a global phenomenon, not just a U.S. phenomenon. So we are likely talking about billions of animals kept as pets. Let's begin with the simple fact that pets are captive animals. For many, if not most pets, this is strict captivity, with the pets being kept in cages for their entire lifetime. You write, quote, the necessity of bars is a good indication that we hold these animals against their will, end quote. Right on cue, there goes Bella in the background. <laughs> we, we welcome your voice to this conversation, Bella. We, we welcome your perspective. You also write, quote, life for permanently cage-bound creatures is rather like life in prison, and even in some cases, like solitary confinement. These animals have no meaningful interactions with their own kind have minimal physical activity, have almost no mental stimulation, and experience a severe reduction in the kind and quality of environmental stimuli. Like humans, our pets suffer psychological and physiological ill effects from these conditions, end quote. I stress that you are not implying that this matter is entirely black and white. Dogs, for example, cats, other small domesticated animals such as rabbits, hamsters, and gerbils, these pets may should they have kind and empathetic owners, owners who do research and understand how to make their pets' lives diverse and rich and meaningful, these pets are likely able to live rich, rewarding, happy lives, if, if their guardians take the time. But for most pets, it seems, life in captivity is a life of intense boredom and restrictiveness. Leaving aside the matter of social isolation, which I will be asking about next, Dr. Pierce, can you talk quickly about the matters of concern surrounding forced captivity? Sure. I'll start with the, the animals that you mentioned first, the, the ones who we keep behind bars or within a tank, who are obviously captive. Although a lot of people are, find it kind of off-putting to have pets spoken about in this way. 
But if, if the bars or the glass wall of a tank is holding an animal in place and not allowing that animal to scurry off, which they probably would given the choice, that's a pretty obvious example of a captive animal. And I think that the main problem with captivity is simply that you have taken away an animal's freedom, their freedom to live their life on their own terms in whatever way would be natural to that kind of animal. You know, I think with with birds and fish, perhaps the problems of captivity are are more obvious. Birds need to fly. Fish need to swim around in a space that's larger than, you know, a gallon of water. And taking that away from them takes away what it means for them to be a creature of that kind. You know, an animal in a cage can't, for example, hunt for food on their own. They can't engage in a lot of behaviors that they're naturally highly motivated to perform. And I think this is something that people don't necessarily think about. Now, you may think, well, my hamster is in a cage and is happy because I feed him pellets every day. So he doesn't have to do any work. He's just this gets everything for free, but it actually doesn't do an animal any favors to just give them everything as it were for free because then they have nothing to do. And their life is essentially one of, of complete of boredom, sensory deprivation. I think dogs are a, a, on the other end of the spectrum for most people, you know, unless you think of a dog in a puppy mill where they're really clearly captive. They're in, kept in a tiny cage and not allowed really access to the outside. Most dogs in the United States, just to take our local example, are not captive in the sense that they live behind bars all the time. But they're captive in that their lives revolve around what we determine for them. So my dog, Bella, who we just heard in the background, goes outside when I let her outside. She goes to the bathroom on my schedule for her. She doesn't get to hunt her own food. I give it to her. And she, her social interactions are really confined to those that I provide for her, whether I take her to a dog park or, you know, on walks around the neighborhood. So I really control all of the important aspects of her existence and her freedom of choices is quite restricted. I do what I can to give her choices. But sort of within the context of of her living in my environment on my terms. And more generally, we neuter our pets and beyond just forcing our schedules on them, we subject them to training routines. We discourage them from barking, from climbing on furniture. So there's a real sense in which they are even household pets that are well domesticated. And the question of domestication is itself an important question. But even for pets that are well domesticated. There is a real sense in which their lives are quite circumscribed. Yeah, it's interesting. And maybe um, most pronounced in the case of cats. If you make a list of behavioral problems in the cat, and I'm putting that in scare quotes because they're behavioral problems as defined by us, they might be scratching, 
urinating outside the litter box, hunting for prey, seeking attention. All of these things that are labeled as behavior problems are, are actually natural behaviors of a cat. For dogs, you could make a similar list, barking, rolling in dead stuff, seeking attention. These are behaviors that are perfectly natural for a dog. To teach a dog to be a good pet means we have to teach them basically to suppress their natural behaviors. So walking a dog on a leash, that's not a normal and sort of natural thing for a dog to do. And it takes a lot of effort on our part to help them understand what it means to do that. Being our pets isn't easy for animals. We really expect them to adapt to an environment that is quite unnatural and in many ways quite challenging for them. It can be made rewarding and fulfilling, and we will get to that. So we're not saying it cannot be, but it takes work and knowledge and creativity on our parts. To help our pets live rewarding lives, we have to go out of our way to accommodate them. It's something we have to work to accomplish. And we will cover this to some degree later in our discussion. So you can find some info there and certainly in Dr. Pierce's book, of course. Yeah, and I think, I think at this point, emphasizing the, the captive nature of our pets is just setting us up to say, well, because we are compromising them in a certain way, it, it sets us up for having a set of responsibilities to them to provide sensory enrichment, basically, which, yes, we'll, we can come to later. But the, the emphasis on captivity is really to create a sense of obligation on our part. It's a perspective that people may not have had before, that with this new perspective, they will be more attentive to the needs of their pets and hopefully able to make their lives a bit more rewarding. Yes, exactly. Let's move on to the harms we impose in socially isolating our pets. You write, quote, the more social a species, the more significant the harm of solitary confinement. We may think of ourselves as our pet hamster's best friends, but he does not think of us in the same way. Hamsters are not programmed genetically to bond with humans. They may become tame and view us without a great deal of fear, but we are not of their kind. Even in our company, they are alone, end quote. You give the example of hamsters, but this of course applies to many pets who are kept alone. Which common pets are social? Nearly all of them. You're right. Dogs and cats, a vast majority of fish species, rats, hamsters, rabbits, gerbils, hermit crabs, bearded dragons. There is no such thing as a solitary animal. Dr. Pierce, can you talk to us a bit more about the effects of social isolation on pets? Sure. Yeah. So when you think about an animal, a wild animal out in nature, a lot of what they are doing throughout the day is engaging in social behavior. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're face-to-face -face interacting with another of their kind or another of another species, but they're dealing with issues of territory, of interactions with potential mates, with potential allies or potential enemies and so forth. So a lot of what is interesting about their lives in the wild are interactions with their environment, including other living beings. 
whom they share space. One of the things about many of the animals that we have domesticated, the reason domestication has been successful is because they are programmed genetically, evolutionarily to be social. You know, and to take the example of dogs, dogs are are highly social mammals. What we do when we adopt a puppy, you know, at the pointed time of eight to 12 weeks of age, is we're basically sort of hijacking their social nature and the, the socialization process that they would go through with their siblings or litter mates, having them sort of imprint onto us, as it were and bond with us. And by doing that, we become their social worlds. And dogs, I think, are very happy being socially connected to us. They can form really strong bonds of attachment and friendship and love with us. But, I mean, the flip side of that is that we are their world. So. If we don't allow them to interact with other dogs or other animals, and a lot of dogs like cats and other creatures, we're denying them access to a lot of potential enrichment and imposing on them potentially a, a lot of loneliness. And, you know, I think dogs are, are a good example here, too, because, you know, a lot of people work outside the home, not these days during COVID, but under normal circumstances, we work outside the home and leave our dogs alone. And that, that's hard on a lot of dogs. Cats, I think, have this reputation as being solitary animals. They're not. Cats are actually quite social. And there's this idea that if you're not home enough, to get a dog, we'll get a cat because they'll be happy by themselves. And, you know, I think that's unfortunate for cats because cats get lonely too. A guinea pig who's kept in a cage for his or her entire life with no interaction ever with another guinea pig is kind of sad because guinea pigs are social. They do much better as, as pairs. Rabbits are social. So if you think about in the most extreme case in sort of parallel in human terms, think of solitary confinement of, of prisoners. There's a ton of psychological research on the harms of social isolation. People break down psychologically and emotionally and never recover often case. And this, the same thing happens to animals. It's not, it's not good for the brain to be socially isolated. Hopefully people today, because of the COVID pandemic, may have been given a new window of empathy. I, I think many of us, even with telephones and Zoom and Skype, still feel the lack of physical social interaction that we're missing out on due to social distancing. So I would say to the listener, try to imagine not having Skype or Zoom or the telephone and never having had any of these or any other social interactions for the entirety of your life. And that is the situation we put many of our pets in. They never encounter in their lives creatures of the same species. So I think this COVID pandemic is an opportunity for us to try to find a little empathy within and give some thought 
to the perspective of the animals that we keep as pets. Yeah, very well said. Um, and I, I actually wrote an article that appeared in Psychology Today, this last issue about exactly that. And in relation to dogs in particular, that there are two behaviors in dogs that are labeled as pathologies. And if you look in the clinical diagnosis of dog behavioral problems, you find, you know, attention seeking and separation anxiety. But those are, we're getting a taste of our own medicine. (laughs) You know, how many of us now are feeling a lot of separation anxiety and attention seeking because we are in this crazy kind of isolation that we've probably many of us never experienced before. And maybe that's what our pets are experiencing every day. It's good of you to highlight that. I I missed that article. And it's just one more example that maybe will give people pause. That we're labeling attention-seeking and separation anxiety as pathologies in dogs. If dogs desire attention or are missing the presence of others, we're labeling that as a pathology that we should try to cure or remove from the dog. Let's move on to the societal implications of the pet industry. In 2012, animal expenditures by U.S. consumers on pets and pet products hit over $55 billion, reflecting steady and strong growth over the last two decades. $55 billion is big money. The kind of money that attracts multinational corporations and the pressures for efficiencies of capitalism and its markets. So what do things look like behind the scenes of the pet industry? You write, quote, pet animals fall victim to the exact same kind of economic calculus as pigs destined for the grocery store. The animals are made to have as many young as possible. Females are tied up so they can be mounted or more often they are artificially inseminated. Babies are taken away from their mothers. End quote. Elsewhere, you write, quote, undercover footage released by PETA from a warehouse of U.S. Global Exotics, one of the country's largest animal wholesale warehouses, shows animals housed in crowded and filthy conditions. Mice and rats and hamsters and guinea pigs are crammed in small bins where they have to fight for space and for access to food and water. In one scene, The camera pans across crates of small tin pie containers with plastic lids. You see that each pie tin contains a coiled snake. The snake bodies fill up the small space, leaving them no room to move. 80% of these animals were found to be grossly sick, injured, or dead. Some of the cases of death include being crushed, dehydration, starvation, thermal stress, and cannibalism. This paints a grim picture. Unfortunately, the reality is grim. What ties all this together is the fact that animals are being processed through the exact same system and according to the same logic that processes raw materials and packaged goods. Dr. Pierce, can you talk to us a bit about the ethical implications of the laissez-faire trade in animals? Sure. As I say in the book, I started really getting uncomfortable with pet keeping when my daughter was young. She was like I was when I was a kid, she loves animals and wanted every single kind of pet she could imagine. And, you know, I think in my, in my mind, I was thinking, well, this is really good educational experience and she's going to learn 
to love animals and learn empathy and responsibility. And she's going to grow up to be a biologist, which she actually did. But I don't think that pet keeping necessarily has that result. But I mean, well-intentioned. But if you walk into a PetSmart, for example, go down to the end of the fish aisle and, you know, you find the displays of betta fish in our PetSmart, at least. They're kept in little tiny cups that have probably two cups of water at the most. Some of them invariably will be dead. And I'm sure the employees are kept busy during the day, taking away the ones that have died that are floating at the top. But these living creatures are expected to stay in two cups of water for days on end until somebody buys them, at which point they might get four cups of water or eight cups of water. And it's just not, it's not a good life for any living creature. One of the things that shocked me was finding out that approximately 75% of all reptiles and amphibians who are destined for the pet store shelf will die before they even get there. My daughter had geckos. So I'm, I am part of the problem here. But learning that really was disturbing to me. And, and the fact that of the ones that have survived long enough to be sold as a pet to a 10-year-old girl, most of them will die within the first year. One of the things I talk about in the book is that the animals themselves are really just almost an excuse for this humongous market of goods. Like if you buy a 25 cent goldfish, you'll spend $50 on accessories, the tank and the little rocks and the, you know, the little treasure chest and the food. If you buy a gecko, you might spend $15 on the animal. The animal's lives are pretty cheap, but then spend $100 getting the accoutrements that you need. The same goes for the dog and cat industries. These enormous consumer juggernauts of beds and shock collars and cute sweaters and litter boxes and you name it. I'm like there you have your $55 billion spent on pet products and the pets themselves are really what drives the buying. And then the, the unseen cost is their lives. I think it's worth just focusing for one second on the fact that you said 70 to 80% will perish before they're sold. Correct. So correct. If their lives were prioritized, I think it's safe to say that those pets would not die, or at least most of them would not die, if a high priority were placed on their lives. So if you restate that, it is simply a cost calculation as part of the process that it is acceptable that 70 to 80% of reptiles and amphibians will not make it to their owners. Well, I, I don't know what the CEO of PetSmart is thinking, I can almost guarantee that he or she understands the cost valuations that are going on um, and that the lives of animals don't 
matter very much. The pet industry is surprisingly opaque. One of the experiences that that I was disquieted by was being in PetSmart, <laughs> where I spent a lot of my time when my daughter was young, far too much time. So my daughter's real passion was for rats. So I learned to really love rats. They're they're lovely animals and they make, you know, as far as pets go, they make good pets and that I think they can have lives that are interesting and enriched and have cages that are large enough that they really can can move around. That being said, one of my excursions, PetSmart, I think, to buy crickets to feed one of these geckos was seeing somebody come in, some delivery guy come in with a Tupperware full of baby rats, probably bred by somebody locally. Where do the animals sold at PetSmart? Where are they sourced from? I think you have a hard time finding out. PETA has done some of that groundwork and they have these images from breeding facilities. So it's not happening at a large, that PetSmart has some big industrial complex where they're breeding geckos and snakes and rats. They're getting sourced on the local level from individuals who who are have set up these breeding operations. And one of the things that I think is quite interesting about the pet industry is it's far less regulated than, for example, factory farming or zoos, where there are actually, I mean, you could be cynical and say, yeah, there are inspectors, but they're, they work for the USDA. The pet industry is a lot more, as I said, it's a lot more opaque. It's pet keeping itself takes place in private. It's far less regulated than really any other use of animal that you can find in our society. That to me is kind of surprising and shocking and disturbing in equal measure. A natural result of that is that we don't hear their voices. We don't know what is going on there. So there are entire realms of violence and sexual abuse that we do not know about, and so cannot factor into our analysis. At least in terms of animal agriculture, we have a good sense of what the evils are. But in terms of the global situation of animals being kept as pets and moving within the pet industry, we don't know. That is kept hidden from us, and to some degree, not accidentally. Yeah, and and really the only time that it becomes open to public view is when there's a case of abuse or neglect that is so severe and also somewhat outside (laughs) that it can get reported by concerned neighbors or community members. If If a dog is being beaten and nobody ever sees, nothing is ever going to happen to protect that dog. And Not sure you want to go down this path in this interview, but one of the really disturbing aspects of researching this book was the whole culture of sexual exploitation of animals, pet animals, many of whom are adopted for the purposes of becoming a sex toy. And that takes place 
behind the curtains and you can get a glimpse of it if you go into one of the, for example, one of the internet chat rooms where people talk about things that they're doing with or to their animals. But but otherwise, it really um, is something that is very hidden from view and also really taboo to talk about. People get extremely uncomfortable if you start talking about bestiality. Of, of course, this is very veiled, so it's impossible to know for sure. But is there any sense of number? Do we have an ability to quantify the numbers that we're talking about? The the rough number that I mentioned in the book, and this is from the ASPCA, um, they estimate 900 to 1,000 zoos, which is what people call themselves who like to engage with sex with animals. There are approximately 1,000 zoos actively talking to each other at any given time on one of these internet forums. And when I visited one called Beast Forum in November of 2013, it had over a million members. Right. So those are orders of magnitude different, a few thousand versus a few million. So, well, so uh, a a million members, um, about a thousand of whom are actively talking to each other at any particular point in time. I would say that the more relevant number there is the one million members. We find a similar situation on, say, the science subreddit. Yes. The science subreddit has 24.9 million members. I'm one of them. But currently, according to the website, there are only 11.5 thousand people active on it online. 24.9 million subscribers, 11.5 thousand active. Yes. Yeah. The number of people who engage with the science subreddit is likely closer to that 24.9 million than the 11.5 thousand. It's just that only a small number are categorized as, quote, active, which I believe on Reddit may mean being logged in on a browser or actively typing. I'm, I'm not sure. And people scrolling through Reddit on one of its apps on their phone are not captured as active. I'm, I'm really not sure. Likewise, with these bestiality forms, only some subset of the number of people that monitor the site are going to register as active at any one moment. Whereas there may be plenty of other people who are monitoring and only actively using every few weeks or months or years. Let's look beyond the suffering of individual animals. Is there any other collateral damage associated with pet keeping apart from animal suffering and death? Uh, Indeed, yes, there is. There is the trash problem. You write, quote, pet owners buy food for their animals. They also buy vast quantities of toys, beds, cages, kennels carrying totes, bowls and bottles, clothing, collars, tags, automatic ball throwers, medicines, etc. The environmental costs certainly pile up, end quote. There's the excrement problem. You write, quote, we cannot forget the waste materials. Fecal output is estimated at about three quarters of a pound per day for a large dog, which equals approximately 274 pounds of feces a year. This fecal material presents a number of environmental problems from the large number of plastic poop pickup bags in landfills to the potential for contamination of lakes, streams, and rivers with pathogens from feces that is left on the ground, end quote. There is the climate change problem. You write, quote, perhaps one of the largest environmental impacts involved with pet keeping is food. Consumption of meat is one of the key drivers of global warming, end quote. 
And of course, we feed many of our pets meat products. I will note that in addition to climate change, animal agriculture is also responsible for species collapse and extinction due to the tremendous amount of land usage it requires. And Dr. Pierce, as your book details, the pet industry is responsible for species collapse and extinction in additional ways as well. Small, wild-caught forage fish are one of the key ingredients in fish-based dog and cat foods. Pets, and especially cats, account for 13% of the total wild-caught forage fish consumed each year. These small fish are vital food for other marine creatures such as seabirds, marine mammals, and larger fish. Unsustainable fishing harvests are having devastating effects on the oceans. And of course, the international trade in exotic pets is one of the key drivers of biodiversity loss. Unsustainable harvest of wild animals for the pet trade has already led to population decline and collapse for many species. So yes, this is a bleak picture, but unfortunately, the reality is bleak. Dr. Pierce, can you talk to us about some of the larger environmental impacts of pet keeping? This isn't so much about the pet industry, but just about pet keeping. One of the species that I I really get stuck on as pets are cats because cats are in some ways make wonderful pets they're companionable and form really close bonds with us but there is the issue of cats and wildlife cats are responsible for really devastating losses of birds especially songbirds and small critters and the the response that that some people have which is just lock your cat inside is you know it might be the right thing to do but it's not without its own problems because you know, there's a f- fair amount of research on the welfare of indoor cats and it it tends to be poorer than the welfare of cats who have access to the outside because cats are really motivated to hunt and to roam around. So if you take that away, now unless you substitute something else that's pretty darn good, the cats are going to be frustrated. Dogs also have a significant impact on wildlife. They, they chase deer, they chase squirrels, even if they don't catch them. If an animal is spending time running away from dogs or being scared by dogs, they're spending less time doing things that they need to do to survive. Changing their behavior to avoid places where dogs may be. Exactly. And there's some really interesting research on what ecologists call landscapes of fear. And basically exactly that, how wild animals will change a whole cascade of behaviors in response to the presence of fearful stimuli. So even even having a trail where dogs walk through, and even if the dogs are on leash, it's still impacting the behavior of the animals that, that live in that ecosystem and that in that ecological community. So that's not to say that it's wrong to have dogs, but just to say there are there are trade-offs. And I think that the scale problem is one of the most significant issues with, with pets and pet keeping, that there are just so many animals kept as pets and so much stuff associated with 
that, that it becomes a problem, an environmental problem and a problem for wildlife just by nature of how big it is. And if in my community, two people had cats or I live in a small town, so that there are not that many people here. But if two people had cats rather than a hundred people, the issues of scale are so much different. I think we're we're facing a climate crisis. Just to take that example, that that is really profound. And any ways that we can contribute less to carbon output, for example, is a good thing. So cats again come to mind because you know I think dogs can can eat a vegan diet and be happy and healthy, but cats can't. So you really, you don't have a choice with cats, but to feed them meat. And incidentally, cats who are well-fed will still hunt. There's this idea, well, I'm going to, if I feed my cat plenty, she'll go outside and she won't kill anything. No, (laughs) they don't hunt because they're hungry. They hunt because they're motivated to hunt. So it it doesn't solve the problem. So issues of scale are really, really critical there. I thought I would quickly interject another reminder that Dr. Pierce and I are both pet guardians and we both love animals. It is our assumption that almost everyone is familiar with the benefits of pet keeping. And so our purpose here is just to shed some light on aspects of pet keeping that we do not commonly think of and that are perhaps a bit more problematic than we have previously assumed not out of any hostility towards animals, but out of a love for them and a desire to protect them and make sure they live happy, comfortable, rewarding lives. Dr. Pierce, can you talk to us a bit about the shelter industry? When I was young, we adopted a dog from a shelter. His name was Dodger, and we loved him very much. But even to this day, and I've read a lot about animal rights, I still don't know very much about the shelter industry. And I found your book to be very illuminating on that subject. Although I would venture to guess most people have heard of animal shelters, I suspect that people would be shocked to read what you have to say about them in your book. Quote, there are millions of abandoned, unwanted, abused, relinquished animals languishing in our nation's shelters, pounds, and humane societies. End quote. One of, if not the principal functions of shelters is the killing of animals. They weren't designed for that sole purpose. Actually, they were. <laughs> that was the, the original function of the pound was to kill unwanted animals. But that's a digression. So, um, <laughs> You see, even still, after reading your book, I, I still don't entirely understand how they fit in. I think many people know there's a pound in the next town over, say, but they don't really understand. You write in your book, taking a middle-of-the-road estimate, about 3 million companion animals are killed every year in our nation's shelters. You write, quote, euthanasia is part of the well-greased machinery of the pet industry. We have, after almost a century of institutionalized killing of pets, perfected techniques for dispatching large numbers of animals efficiently, cheaply, and nearly invisibly, end quote. Dr. Pierce, if possible, I think it would be ideal if you could begin by describing the shelter industry what it is, what its functions are, why it's responsible for so much death. Yeah. And I mean, I would preface this by saying that many of the nation's shelters in the U.S. are 
staffed by people who are dedicated to animals and to saving animals and making their lives better. So I want to qualify my criticisms of what I call the shelter industry. And the fact that I call it an industry is a clue by saying that it's a mixed bag. And the people there that you'll find in in many of the nation's shelters are are good people who are working on behalf of animals. I think the the key issue, well, there are a couple, but so one thing about shelters that I think people don't see it this way is that the shelter industry relies on there being animal bodies to fill the shelters in a way. I mean, if if the problem of homeless and unwanted animals went away, the shelter industry would collapse. And you could say, well, that might be a good thing, <laughs> but it's it's part of the the larger machinery of pet keeping in this country, at least. And I think this is true in other countries as well. So it's almost like this sort of revolving door, vicious circle. Shelters are where the pets go when people have been irresponsible. And sometimes the circumstances that that wind an animal up in the shelter are not irresponsibility. But just broadly speaking, people adopt animals without really taking a lifelong commitment, without doing their research ahead of time, without really knowing what they're getting into, and treat animals more like library books that you just return if you're not happy with it. And shelters feed into this by saying, well, if you adopt a pet and your pet has behavioral problems, you bring your pet back and get a different one. And if there are too many unwanted pets, well, then we have euthanasia to kind of solve the problem of of unwanted or um, fractious animals, animals who who can't adapt to human home, the human home environment, or who have had too many bad experiences to to sort of function well emotionally. And at least, so where I live, the shelters are wonderful. They're these, they're very humane, brightly lit. The animals are, they're in kennels. So they're sad places to go. You know, and you walk through and the dog's, look at you with a kind of, you know, why am I here? And won't you please be my friend expression. And nevertheless, you get the sense that the, it's kind of a the safety net. If I, if I can't handle my pet keeping responsibilities, there's this nice place where I can take my dog or my cat and somebody else will come and adopt my animal and give him or her a good home. So I think it it just makes everybody feel better about the whole situation. Except I would say maybe not the animals because they're they're caught in the wheels of this uh, uh, uncomfortable situation. One of the more disturbing components of my research for this book was actually taking a training course in euthanasia that was put on by one of the shelters down in Denver. And it's it really was a, a training to get rid of unwanted animals. And I feel for the people who are tasked with this job because it 
is one of the hardest things. And it's unfair that we ask people to do this work. People who are tasked with the killing of animals in shelters wind up having a lot of emotional baggage because it's such hard work to do. And you could say we're doing a lot better than we used to do. Um, Three million animals dying in shelters is much better. I mean, the trajectory is going down, but three million is a lot. That's that's a, a lot of lives. And there are many shelters that aren't nice places at all. There's there's one down in Denver that's just, you know, it's a bunch of little chicken wire cages in one great big warehouse room. Dogs barking. Every single one of them looks stressed out. There's poop all over the floor. And the people seem hardened to the work that they're doing. And very unlike the shelter um, that is just down the road from me will make you feel better about things. But I think I think everybody who wants to get a dog or a cat should go to a shelter and see what's going go to a few actually and adopt from a shelter because those are the animals who need us the most. If I can summarize quickly to make sure my understanding is correct. So there's a certain number of pets living in the United States and some of those become, if I can use this phrase, homeless. Either their guardians no longer want to have them due to a change in life circumstance for any number of reasons, or perhaps their guardian perish, or perhaps a court determined that their guardian was behaving in an irresponsible manner towards those pets and was no longer entitled to keep them. Anyway, for pets that were kept with humans and no longer have a home to live in, these are the pets that populate shelters or pounds. And then those shelters or pounds have a certain number of places with which to house those pets. And so as new pets keep coming in and there is no longer space in the pound to house the old and the new arrivals, the excess pets, I say that in quote excess, the excess pets, which is to say the pets that do not have a place to stay in the pound have to be killed. Is that correct? I'm not so a rough description. The demographics of shelter populations are extremely complex. And, you know, there's some places in the country, like where I live in the Rocky Mountain, the West, the shelters are not over full for the most part, although there are a lot of pit bull type dogs because Denver has breed restrictions. So that that's a whole separate issue. But there are places in the country that are you might say that the shelters are too empty. And so there's a lot of transport of dogs from the South, for example, in the Midwest, states that have more significant problems with homeless pets or um, relinquishment. And, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, one of the reasons that shelters in the Midwest and the South have more animals than they can handle and ship them to places where people, where it's cool to adopt from, you know, where there's this more awareness of rescue as opposed to buying from a breeder. It's often dog breeding operations that fill the shelters up with dogs in the first place, which seems totally backwards, but they 
may have a litter of puppies that perhaps they had six puppies and they were able to sell two. The other four get too old. They're older than 12 weeks old, too old to sell. They go to the shelter and the breeder starts over with another litter of pups. So it feeds the appetite of those people who are buying from pet stores, the breeders, and it also feeds the appetite of the do-gooders and places like I live who want to rescue dogs from shelters. Before we move on, I'd like to stress the point that you made at the beginning of your response. I, I do want to stress that it is in no way our intention to single out for blame the people that work in shelters. It is not their fault, really. It is our fault. You give counterexamples to our cultural practices in your book. You cite European countries in which spaying and neutering, and we haven't even really been able to get to those yet, and euthanasia are considered morally objectionable, are rare, and in some cases even illegal. Can you talk to us a bit about that, giving an example of a country whose, if I may say, economy of pet keeping is different and more ethical than ours? To illustrate for the listener that it doesn't have to be this way, that we could have a different system? Yeah, I think the Scandinavian countries are maybe a good example. And, and the, the point to take home is, I think you often hear people in the United States kind of bemoaning this system and how many unwanted pets we have and this enormous problem of pet homelessness and how every dog, the only solution to this is to spay and neuter everything that moves and has fur. And, you know, it's not the only way to visualize the problem and it's not the only way to solve the problem. And in Scandinavian countries, just to take that example, you know, the, the spay-neuter ethic is very different. There isn't this feeling that every animal needs to be spayed and neutered. And in fact, very few are. And it's generally only done if it's going to be of benefit to the animal health-wise. And they don't have the problems of pet homelessness that we do and pet overpopulation. So it's just a, a way of saying that spay-neuter isn't necessarily the answer. It's just one way of responding to the problem, but it may just be, I think the difference is that people in countries that have a different attitude towards spay-neuter also control their, their dogs and cats better than we do. And so they don't have sort of random breeding and, and reproduction and, and too many puppies and kitties. Would it be accurate to articulate that by saying that people in these other countries simply assume more responsibility when adopting their pets, that they take a less cavalier attitude towards the burdens of guardianship over pets? Yes, that's fair to say. And maybe take the whole process more seriously. And I think, I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but my guess is the population of pets is much smaller and the sort of ratio of pets to households is, is smaller. So the people choosing to live with a dog or cat are a smaller subset and maybe people who are really committed to taking the time they need to, to be with their animals and have responsible sort of community dog and cat 
ecologies. Okay, we've dealt for a good while now on everything that's wrong. Let's tackle the question of what our pets need. In other words, what can we be doing to provide rich, rewarding environments for our pets? Dr. Pierce, you write, quote, animals need unconditional access to clean water, nutritious food, shelter from the elements, and adequate amounts of exercise. They also need frequent enough veterinary care that treatable illnesses are dealt with and painful conditions either resolved through treatments or addressed with adequate medications. They also need to be provided with appropriate challenges, which afford them opportunities to put their functional competencies to work, to engage in their full range of behaviors, and to engage their intelligence. They require enriched environments, which allow them to fulfill their primary needs in an inventive, varying, and flexibly adaptive way. End quote. I stress that the point of this list is not to overburden the listener or to make them feel bad about their lives of their pets. The point is to state clearly the behaviors that our pets rightly can ask of us. If we're asking our pets to devote their lives to us by living with us in captivity, this is what we can offer them in return. I think about there being three pillars of well-being for animals that that we can think about as their companions, physical health, cognitive health, and emotional health, and doing what we can to to keep those three arenas in mind. And there's no such thing as a perfect pet parent, to use that uh, analogy. It's kind of like being a human parent. You You do the best you can you educate yourself and you try hard. And I think with our animals, the same is true. I mean, there's no such thing as perfect, but being highly motivated to find out what they need, find out what they like and find creative ways to give them as much of those things as you can. Taking the example of dogs, giving dogs an opportunity to use their brains, doing depending on the kind of dog or the dog's personality, doing nose work or agility or playing ball or frisbee or going to the dog park if the dog is a highly social individual and just finding ways to to stimulate them and making sure their sensory environment is is enriching by, you know, when you take your dog for a walk, let them sniff. That's dogs see the world through their noses. So just Knowing that, we can give them the space that they would like to have to smell the world around them and to pee on the rose bushes because it's like leaving post-it notes for their friends or getting on Facebook. It's how they communicate and interact with other dogs and other animals in their community. So, So learning about who dogs are, what normal dog behaviors are, and being as compassionate and patient as we can with the behaviors that we find challenging. And there will be. I don't know any pet owner who isn't challenged by some behavior or another. And just doing the best we can to to negotiate the challenges with our animal as partners rather than boss. And and every parent screws their children up in some way. And I think we screw our animals up too. And just, so we have to have compassion for ourselves too. We do the best we can. And 
Our animals have their own quirks and difficulties too. Bella's laying here next to me. She's her nickname is Mrs. Bitey, which gives you some idea of <laughs> her proclivities. Um, she doesn't like people, and that's really challenging. It you know we have to alter our behavior out in the world when we go out with her to you know, avoid interactions. People with dog reactive dogs, I think that's even harder. So. Yeah, just negotiation. I think it's worth quickly noting that this is a relatively new field. There are certain questions over the course of history that people just don't think to ask for a while. And then suddenly they turn their attention to them and realize that they were important after all. And for some reason, the question as to the quality of pets' lives seemed to be one of those questions. I'm not suggesting that no one has ever given any thought to it before. But I do think that it has not been discussed as broadly as, say, the practices of hunting or of animal agriculture are. But hopefully these questions, with the help of your book and others to follow, will bring a greater attention to the subject matter to a greater number of people so that we can begin the process of extending greater empathy to our pets and gradually making their lives better and more rewarding. Yes, I, I think that that's a, a wonderful aspiration. and. Just acknowledging that the the role animals play in our lives is profound for some of us. It's hard to imagine life without companions of the furry kind. And they bring so much love to us. We we owe it to them, I think, to to really think carefully about what their lives are like from their perspective and do what we can to make it a mutually enriching experience and not not one-sided. It's an aspiration, but I don't think an exceedingly far-fetched one. People are extending greater empathy to animals in greater numbers. We see this in the increasing numbers of vegetarians and vegans out there in the rows and rows of oat milk and uh, non-dairy milks in the supermarket. So I think this is a movement with a future, and I think your book is an important event in that history. Well, I hope so. I know that some people who have read the book, particularly um, those with a sort of activist bend, were disappointed that I didn't come out more strongly against pet keeping. I don't like that language, but, you know, against living in companionable relationships with animals in our homes. And there are people, some philosophers who have taken a much more I, rigid is perhaps the wrong word, but black and white stance saying no, no form of pet keeping is ever ethical. It's patronizing the animals and captivity is never okay. And I'm not willing to go that far yet. I'm willing to go as far as to say maybe only dogs and cats. I don't talk about horses at all because it's just feel like it's a, a whole different conversation. Maybe even, I, I don't know, I have second thoughts about cats because of the issues with wildlife. <laughs> I, I think that you go quite far and I think it's not necessarily on your shoulders individually. <laughs> I'm sure I go way too far for most people, probably. <laughs> I think that what you do with your book is simply present the evidence. And not only the evidence as to the adverse aspects of pet keeping, 
but also ideas and suggestions as to how to make pet guardianship more rewarding and better for the animals, how to improve the lives of the pets that we do have. Yes, that's that's the goal. Dr. Pierce, thank you so much. We've already taken up a great deal of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything that you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us? Sure. So I'm, I'm working on a book uh, about dogs in particular and what it would look like to live ethically with dogs. And it's kind of the I guess you could say run, spot, run is kind of the dark, <laughs> the dark side. And this is the the light side. And, and that, you know, it's all of the things that conscientious, responsible minded dog owners worry about. I mean, I think there are a lot of things about living with drugs that are, that are tricky ethically. So I'm working on that. And I just finished a collaborative project with, ethologist Mark Beckhoff on it was a thought experiment about what would happen to dogs if humans were to go extinct tomorrow would dogs survive and um, what would their what would their evolutionary trajectory look like without humans controlling breeding providing food resources and so forth and it, it was fascinating project and really evolved my thinking about who dogs are and what they need. So, well, maybe we can talk about that next time when the book is done and out. I look forward to that. They sound like two fascinating projects. Yeah, I, I think. Dr. Pierce, your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject. I have read a great deal of animal rights books in my time. And your book has fundamentally changed my perspective on pets and guardianship. So I thank you for that. And I highly, highly recommend your book to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Jessica Pierce about her 2016 book, Run, Spot Run, The Ethics of Keeping Pets. It's a wonderful book, compassionate and empathetic, and an important book. I hope you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Molloy, and you've been listening to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time.